Well, brothers and sisters, if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We'll continue our study of the parables in the gospel of Luke, particularly those unique, those parables that are unique to him. We're not going to look at those parables that we've already visited in the gospel of Matthew, but those that are unique to Luke. And we are going to look at the parable of the fruitless fig tree. So um, before I read from chapter 13, verse one through nine, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, Heavenly Father, we come again in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our teacher. And we ask, O Lord, for your hand of education. Lord, we ask that you would come and, Lord, by your power, correct us, enlighten us, change us, Lord, by the way we think, the things, the how we discern things, how we see the events going on around us. Help us, Lord, to be spiritually minded and mature. Help us, Lord, to understand that you are at work and there are certain things that are required of us that we should focus on all the time. So come and, Lord, help us to take this portion of your word and use it profitably in our lives, savingly. Lord, I pray for every believer here this morning that each one would have something to walk away with and grow in grace by and be edified by this message. Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet to come to Christ, use this urgent warning of our Lord to repent of sin in their lives, to bring them, Lord, to this great day, Lord, of faith and repentance. Use it. Use the urgency of this text to bring them to salvation. And we ask all of this in Christ's most holy name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 1. And now on the same occasion, or and now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Well, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Passing on events that are tragic is not new to our generation or culture at all. Of course, things happen so rapidly now. When something happens, we are immediately on our uh, devices, and that's what we call them now, these devices. They're no longer phones, but they're devices and because they do so much more than make phone calls, right? And so we're on our devices taking pictures or videos, and we're sending that tragedy out to our followers or to the people that we're connected with. That's similar to what is going on here that initiated this simple parable by our Lord and Savior. This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to look at the context as we 
have a habit of doing. We're going to look at what prompted the parable. And then we're going to look at the parable proper. And I'll divide it up into its useful part so that we can hopefully walk away with the doctrine that is being impressed upon us by the Holy Spirit. Well, the circumstance is a couple of tragedies. We don't know what the first one actually is. It's, it's a mystery to us. We, there's probably a, at least a dozen theories as to what is being referred to when it's talking about Pilate mixing the blood of these Galileans with the sacrifices. That doesn't mean we don't have the right theory, but it just means that among all of those that are being uh, put out there as a possible meaning of what that, that phrase is addressing, we just don't know. And I'm not going to spend the time to cover a dozen of those. I just don't think it would be helpful for us. Whatever it was, it was tragic. And Pilate was exercising uh, the uh, power of the sword like good tyrants do. It seems very obvious that Jesus is, uh, it, it says in verse one, right? Now on the same occasion, that is he's doing this teaching, this is his last year of his ministry, he's on the way to Jerusalem. And on this occasion where you can see verse 54 of chapter 12 and following, where he's talking about paying every cent of what is owed in a spiritual manner, that on that same occasion, in that same environment, he, he receives this report from some about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with these sacrifices. It was a tragedy. And they're informing Jesus and they're informing the disciples that are with Jesus of, of what has happened. This news is circulating the countryside, if you will. Now, we don't seem to have at all anything that Jesus banters back and forth about what this is. Notice in verse 2, Jesus cuts to the heart of an issue that I think he's been dealing with back up in chapter 12. He says, and Jesus said to them, who's them? Those that have brought the news. And he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Now, it does imply that in this report that they may have suggested that they deserved what they received from Pilate. We don't know. But it certainly can be implied because of the way Jesus addresses them. Wait a minute, are you saying that they were somehow well, more worthy of this than other Galileans? He really puts this question to them for consideration, doesn't he? You know, even it's, it's um, human nature hasn't changed in a couple of thousand years, has it? For we do similar things as we talk about the conservatives versus the progressives and, you know, uh, believers versus unbelievers and all of these various ways in which we seem to segregate one group against another. And I'm not saying segregation in all circumstances is wrong. Understand what I'm saying in context. Jesus is going to use the circumstance to address this great national need of these Israelites, which is their lack of faith and repentance, their lack of bearing the fruit of the kingdom of God that they've been called to bear and to be the, 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 the sons of God, if you will, on earth to be the, the subject of God's great blessings and how the whole earth would be blessed through them. Right? Wasn't that the promise given to Abraham? 
that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Now, obviously, he was referring to Christ. But how did Christ come into the world? Through the nation of Israel. I think what's important to note here for our benefit and use of the text is that Jesus seems to be driving home this sense, this false sense of security. This false sense of security. Somehow they had isolated them, these Galileans had isolated themselves or even insulated themselves by their integrity and their morality that they were somehow better than those Galileans that Pilate had sacrificed or murdered. That somehow they were worthy of what they, they got what they deserve, so to speak. And there's this false sense of security in that, that Jesus wants to rip away from them. He wants to take it out of their hands. He wants to show them, wait a minute, are you any better? He's addressing these reporters, isn't he? And he's saying, listen, do you suppose that these Galileans are greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Put them to thinking. Put them to pondering. Now, what would they have to do in order to consider the question? They would have to consider themselves. They would have to consider the way they do things, the, what their motivations are when they do some good deed or not. And then look at verse 4, he adds to this. He said, or do you suppose this was another tragedy that was well known? And, and Jesus brings this to their attention. They didn't bring this portion up, this part up, or this tragedy up. He does. And he says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Salaam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Now, this is more than likely the Tradition is that we all know in John 9 there are the, the, the pools of Siloam where they would come and they would put down their infirmed and when the waters would churn, the infirmed would need to be put down into the water and they'd be healed. That was at least the story or the understanding. Well, a tower fell and it more than likely or it is believed that it fell on that location. And while there were all of these infirm people lying around this pool, this tower fell and killed 18 of them. That is tragic because they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't get out of the way. It was just, you know, a, a, a sincere tragedy. But Jesus uses this to say the same thing. He says, listen, do you think they were worse? I mean, because you can see the people going, well, the reason that happened was because they were great sinners. I mean, they were already infirmed and God was judging them. And God had already judged them and they were bearing that judgment in their infirmity. And now the tower falls on them. They were doubly cursed. And Jesus addresses this mentality. He's addressing this, this misunderstanding of, well, faith in the divine sense of it, God's providence. That somehow we believe that we are infallible when it comes to reading God's providence. And that we're accurate. We know we are. Just ask us. That we know we've got the facts down. It's almost as if we've been on a phone call with God and he told us all about it. And let me tell you, this is why that tragedy happened. This is what Jesus is correcting. Jesus is basically telling them, you don't know what's going on. You don't know that this was God's judgment on them for their sin. And do you think you're better than them? 
I mean, hypocrisy was certainly a vibrant, it was a reality in the life of these Israelites. But hypocrisy, even though it's a sin that can stand by itself, I mean, that means you can be guilty of hypocrisy and, and, you know, that can be a dominant sin in your life, but hypocrisy definitely follows self-righteousness. Hypocrisy is definitely a sin that accompanies, it's a sister to self-righteousness. If you are a self-righteous person, you will be proven to be a hypocrite. It's impossible not to be. Why? Because you have such a wrong assessment of yourself. And that wrong assessment of self leads to a wrong assessment of others. And it will demonstrate your hypocrisy more often than not. Look, look at chapter 13. Look at verse 15. I mean, Jesus is having to address this hypocrisy on when he heals on the Sabbath. I, I want to read this portion. I want to begin reading at verse 10. He said, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. Now, that's not a good spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And then Jesus saw her. He called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And then the synagogue official, this is, this is, this is, this is the guy I'm talking about. The synagogue official, indignant. Why? Because he's so holy. He's so pious and righteous. He's indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. Let me just stop there and make a comment. I mean, you don't like this guy. You just don't like this guy. But the woman didn't come to Jesus. Jesus called the woman to him. So the guy was wrong. He, missed, he didn't even understand the situation. Jesus saw her among the others and had what on her? Compassion. And called her to himself that he might liberate her from this demonic spirit that had caused her great suffering for many years. And what was her response to her deliverance? And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And that sounds like a, pro, a, a, a proper use of the Sabbath day, does it not? But this is what Jesus is dealing with. This is what he's confronted. This is what he is confronting. This is what he's trying to root out, this root sins. He's rooting this out of his listeners. And now does he say, but the Lord answered him. This is the synagogue official, mind you. You hypocrites does not eat. Now, he would also be addressing those that heard the synagogue official and they were like this. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. You correct this guy here, this, this roaming rabbi. You need to put him in his place. That's, that's he's correcting them. And he says, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water. What logic? What logic? Jesus is saying, if you cared for your animal on the Sabbath day, how dare you correct me for caring for this woman on the Sabbath day? If you 
were concerned about the life of your animal on the Sabbath day. Who are you to correct me when I care about this woman's life on the Sabbath day? Which one's more important? Now, we just finished up a, a, a several sermons about what's more important, what's more valuable, right? Which one is more valuable, the ox or the donkey or the woman? In verse 16, and this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan had bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? I think that what Jesus is saying is, what better day to be delivered from this demon than on the day of grace and salvation? What a picture of deliverance. And Jesus begins to affirm it's not only what's greater than the other. He says, but isn't this even a better picture of the Sabbath day of having deliverance from the devil of darkness? Which is what salvation is, isn't it? That's what real salvation is. God comes and he plucks us out of the family of the devil, doesn't he? He pulls us right out of that and he brings us into, he translates us and adopts us into the family of light. What mercy, what grace, what compassion. So Jesus has to confront this false sense of security that they have. And he does this by calling them to repentance. And, and the way he does this call to repentance, it's urgent. It's, it's an imperative. It's, it's, they need to do this. If not, then they too are going to suffer the fate of the ones that they believe they're better than them. Now, it may be at the end of their life, but nevertheless, they will suffer destruction of soul when they're cast into the lake of fire at the second death. And so what is going to keep them? What is going to ad address this false security? How are they going to put off this false security? Well, they've got to repent. They've got to repent of their sins, of, of trusting in the gods of this world or these institutions or these agents. They, they trust in themselves. Why? Because it's their own determination of how things look and how things appear to them that they make these judgments on and they have to forsake that. They have to, what? Lean, trust, rest in God, familiarize, educate themselves, learn the word of God so they might know his will and this, that sometimes very tragic things happen to good people. Yes, good people suffer. Good people suffer a lot sometimes. Good people suffer great tragedies. So the tragedy is never a divine symbol of God's judgment. It may simply be God's favor and, and sanctification or taking one of his children out of this world because it will become basically unlivable. I think about some of the people that I love and some of the people that have gone on and some of my you know, I look and I thought, wow, you know, those men and women that have passed away and not allowed to see this country fall to the depths of this chaos, I'm thinking, praise God they didn't see it. Praise God they did not ever see this masquerading lie that people can identify as something that they're never going to really be and we be forced legally to recognize it. I praise God that 
Some of my family has never, never see these days. And you can't help but think as we move forward and that we're in this for the long term and we're in this for decades to come, right, because of God's hand upon this country because of its lack of repentance that we are not to be prayerful and, well, giving ourselves as much as we possibly can to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, whatever that case may be, so that we what? We don't let them fall victim to this darkness because it's everywhere. Enough said about that. So we see the context and we see the urgency that Jesus says, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to examine yourself. So now let's look at the parable proper. And there's going to be two ways. There's going to be two things I want to bring out in the parable. Two truths. First of all, I want to bring out the need for the, the, the need for an urgent personal assessment. It's, it's when we come into contact with these tragedies, there's a need for a personal assessment of ourselves. Why? Well, because when things like this happen, we make judgments. And what we first need to do is look at ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. We need to make sure that our motivations are, are pure, are good, and that we're not just throwing stones. And this is what I do hate about the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, one uniparty basically, but it's amazing how stones are tossed to and fro, if you will, and we're supposed to be mindless and just go, oh, we're conservative, so we're just going to fall in line with the conservatives when we look at them, and, and we don't see much of a difference, do we? We need to assess ourselves. Um, Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 uh, John the Baptist was even dealing with this national problem when he was out baptizing and some of the uh, Pharisees and the scribes came up to John to basically examine him and say, are you, is this a good thing? Are we going to allow this to happen? What's this baptism all about? And remember, John confronts him. He says, hey, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? about the wrath to come. Do you not understand that the ax is laid at the root of the tree? Now, this is the idea. Now, this, is, this has happened already. Jesus seems to continue the idea and the thought as he gets into the parable itself. Why? Because they were not bearing the fruits of repentance. They were just big talkers. They loved to talk about religion, but they didn't possess the power of that religion. Nothing new in our day, is it? There are a lot of talkers. There's a lot of showboats out there. But that's not what Jesus is looking for. Our Lord is looking for someone who possesses that religion, who owns that religion in their heart. How? Well, by faith and repentance. That's what Jesus said he came to do. I come preaching the kingdom of God. In what? Belief that you might believe and repent of your sins. So we're to take up this assessment Look at verses, look at verse 7 here. And this is where the vine dresser, he says, and he says to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? I mean, that's, that's the urgency of the assessment, I mean, we have 
a parable that basically has two parties and one main object. We have the owner, we have the vine dresser, and then we have the fig tree. And the urgency that, that is the story, as simple as it is, I mean, it really doesn't even need explanation. It is that clear. But what is, when you hear it, you get this sense of self-examination. I need to, I need to assess myself. I need to, I need, I, I don't need to be worried about those that have nothing to do with me that have suffered tragedy. It might have been deserved. It may not have been deserved. What I need to focus on is do I have repentance? Have I repented of my sins? Am I in the kingdom of heaven? And that's not to say you're not to be concerned about current events. It's how we use them to justify ourselves. We are really quick people to look at a tragedy of something else and go, hmm, God got them. And somehow we're above it. And that's not the case. Because when we make the right assessment, when we come to the right assessment and the right conclusion, beloved, we know that we deserve everything we get. That's tragic. That our even, and we preach it from this pulpit. You hear it all the time. That even our good works are only sanctified by Christ. They're only accepted because of Christ. They're not accepted because we do them. They're not accepted because I tried real hard. They're accepted because Jesus is our mediator between us and the Father, and he sanctifies us in those works, and our Father accepts those works based upon Christ's sanctifying of those works. It's by grace. We stand by grace at all times. That even the good works we do, do, is the Spirit working in us, flowing in us and forming out of us by grace. It's the power of grace working in us that I want to be kind, compassionate, patient, considerate, loving, merciful. That's from grace working. And so that even when we do those things, they're never perfect, but even then they're accepted because they are the works of grace in the life of a believer that's being sanctified by the Spirit of God, the Spirit working in them, that which is well-pleasing in God's sight, and God receives them because of grace and Jesus and we never, ever raise our hand and say, I deserve this, ever. That's not grace. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians and Romans. If it's by reward, it's not by grace. If you've earned it, it's not of grace. And so there's this urgent need for Christians professing Christians to always assess themselves. And that's the, that's the whole idea of the present tense. That is, not only have we repented of our sins, what did we do this morning? We repented of our sins again. And that we don't rest in that initial repentance when we put our when we initiated that faith in Jesus Christ and confessed our sins before him that was but the beginning that we would spend our lives confessing our sins before God now and that's ongoing it's ongoing the more I learn about the Word of God, 
the more glorious God becomes to me and the more sinful I become to myself. That's not hyperbole. Those are, that's a fact. The more we know, the more we learn, the more we come into, into that context of understanding the truth, the more glorious God is to us and the more sinful we see ourselves and the greater God's grace is. Uh, this fig tree, this, this tree, I'm going to, this need for this personal assessment. I mean, look, look at the end of the chapter of Luke 13. I'm just, again, highlighting and pointing out these things to you uh, because this was the problem that Jesus was dr- addressing in all of his ministry, really. But look at verse 34. And Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Well, you have to repent to gather with Jesus. He says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Matthew adds a statement to that in his gospel. And he says, hey, I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I'm giving it to another bearing the fruit thereof. That's what Jesus is looking for. You know what Jesus is looking for in your life? Fruit. The fruit of what? Well, that fruit that comes through repentance, that fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's looking for. Let's look at some of these things. Why is the urgency? How does this text teach us the urgency of being fruit bearers? That's what we need to be, fruit bearers. So we need to examine ourselves because we always need to be repenting of our sins. And certainly if you're here this morning and you've never initially repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't bear fruit. You're, you're just a self-righteous hypocrite. You're just, you're trusting in yourself. Listen to me, uh, man, woman, young, old, whoever you may be, if you're here and you have yet to, to deny yourself and put your trust in Christ and confess your sins, then you are trusting in yourself. You are trusting in your good works. You are trusting in your morality. You are trusting that you're going to be good enough to convince God to let you in on the day you die or judgment day. That you're somehow, your good works are going to outweigh the bad and it'll never happen. It'll never happen. If you're here and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we're talking about that ongoing work of repentance, which is vital to fruitfulness. If you're here today and you haven't, you're looking at your life right now and you're saying, Pastor, I don't see a lot of fruit. Well, let's start with repentance. Let's start with what repentance is. Let me give you three things. First, Repentance is a change of mind. It's the way you see things. It's a, it's a change of the way you think. It's a change of your discernment. It's a change of the way you criticize things. It's a, it's a change of the doctrines that you hold to in your head, these presuppositions. You have to change those. You have to agree with God and forsake self and forsake the world. Right now, the world is telling us that when we preach sermons like this, they are anti-Semitic, and we should never preach sermons like this. Well, that's not sin to preach the Bible, is it? I'm talking about sin. Where is sin defined? In the Bible, in the law of God in particular. It is the law of God that shows us what is a sin. And as we study those things and as God shows us those things all throughout our life, what are we to do with them? We are to repent of them. 
So we are to change the way we think about these things. Secondly, we have to have a change of heart. It's not enough even to know what's right. Churches are filled, I believe, with people that know better. That doesn't make them right before God. They can give accurate definitions of Christian terms and biblical terms. They can, they can quote off the books of the Bible, but they don't know God. I'm reminded of the illustration of this fancy dinner that this one old pastor was invited to. And this is a true story, though I can't recall the man's name. If I did, you would know who he, uh, he you would know him. And he is invited to this dinner, this old, old pastor. He was at the end of his ministry, his career, and he's invited. And there was a lot of um, highfalutin people there, popular people. Um, and so they got to talking about religion and, and Psalm 23 and quoting Psalm 23. And, and so one of the popular uh, personalities there, an actor, said that, you know, he could quote Psalm 23. And, and so he stood up in front of all the guests and he, he rattles off Psalm 23. Well, then someone looked at the pastor and said, well, pastor, we're sure that you could do this too. You're a man of God. You know the scriptures. And I'm sure this is a very familiar passage of scripture and you could quote this by heart as well. And he said that he could. And so they asked him to do so. And so he stood up. And he began quoting Psalm 23. And by the time he got to the end of it, there was hardly a dry eye at the table. Now the difference was this. The actor knew Psalm 23. The preacher knew the author of Psalm 23. And that's the difference. So, beloved, you have to have more than just the right understanding. You have to have a heart. Repentance is a change of heart. And this is where you spend so much time on your knees. Lord, change me. There's so much work to be done in me. Help me. Lord, I beg you. I mean, the importune prayer I'm banging at the door Lord don't forget me help me and then third thing there has to be a change of lifestyle you have to change the way you live you have to conform your way of living to your convictions and to your heart. So you're not a hypocrite. That may mean getting a different job. It may mean getting a different set of friends. It may mean changing churches. What did we read in Psalm 1? What does the blessed man do? The blessed man governs the people that he spends time with. Let's talk about this urgency. This is the application. I'm going to give you a couple of these things to walk away with so that you know that you need to be fruitful. The first thing that I want you to notice in the parable is the owner's disappointment. <laughs> if you will, the, he's disgusted, if you will. I mean, notice he comes to the vineyard. He notices there's no fruit on it in verse 6. In verse 7 he says, and he says to the vine, your, the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. You need to know, beloved. We need to know that our heavenly father is disappointed when we are not bearing fruit. And that statement 
I have come looking. I've made many trips. I've come more than once. I've come over a season of time and still no fruit. Cut it down. The owner's disappointment ends with this call to judgment, doesn't it? That we're all going to face, that we may be facing today. Now, beloved, listen to me. I don't know how much time you have, and neither do you. I don't know how much time I have. Are you bearing fruit? Are you being fruitful? Because God's patience may come to an end. Abruptly. That's the picture here. Cut it down. Now, the, 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 the mercy in this, right? That is what we are to be convinced with that we are to be fruit bearers. It's not that just we've been saved to bear fruit. We most certainly have. And the expectation, what's the expectation of the owner? That the fig tree is going to what? Bear fruit. The expectation God has in saving someone is that they will bear fruit. That you will be a fruitful Christian. That you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. That you would and be possessing those things and, and throughout your life, even, even how the Psalms talk about even in older age, the old bear fruits and are vibrant. Why? Because of the many years they walked with the, their Lord. Notice the intervention. Notice the intervention. I want you to see how this also is an, an, a, a way that Jesus is pushing us to consider today bearing fruit, and that is the urgency of it. And he says in verse 8, he says to the vine dresser, why does it even, he says, cut it down, verse 7, why does it even use up the ground if you're useless? Look at the vine dresser or the vine keeper, he says. And he answered him and said, let it alone, sir. Now, that was a, in the Greek, a term of, sir, I've got this for this year too until I dig around it and put fertilizer in it. Look at what this vine keeper is doing, this mediator between the fig tree and the owner. What is that a picture of? Jesus saying to his father, let me, give me a little more time to minister to them. Let me cultivate in their heart more of your work. Let me work in them. But notice what it says. Notice this conditional, this condition. He says, if I dig around it and put in fertilizer, if it bears fruit next year, fine. That means great. But if not, we'll cut it down. Brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with these things. I want you to talk, think about these resources that the, that the Lord Jesus uses in your life to cultivate fruitfulness in you. Some of you have been in church. You were in church nine months before you were even born. Are you fruitful? You've listened to hundreds of sermons, thousands of sermons. Your mom and dad or your mom or your dad, either one separately or together, prayed for you and with you and chastened you to help you see the good way. Maybe God sent friends into your life to correct you, challenge you, plead with you, 
People at church have pleaded with you. They've encouraged you. They've prayed for you. The sermons have been made application to your particular situations at t- from time to time. All of these things, this cultivation, this fertilizing, this, 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 this patience, patience. Why? Because time is a resource you can never get back. It's gone. And God is patient. Brothers and sisters, the question before us is, are we bearing fruit Are we bearing the right kind of fruit? And are we bearing the fruit so that when our master comes, he will be pleased? It's a simple parable, but profound, but profound. You are to be fruitful. Brothers and sisters, if you're not fruitful, you will be cut off and you will be cast into the fire. I can't impress upon you the urgency of becoming fruitful. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful for the word this morning, the opportunity to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see, O Lord, if we are bearing fruit. And if we are, O Lord, we ask that you would come and prune us that would even bear more fruit. For you have planted us in fertile fertile soil. You have hedged around us, Lord, streams of water. You have fertilized us. You have patiently cared for us. Lord, make us fruitful. Lord, as we are fruitful, make us more fruitful. But all that we are, Lord, is not for our own sake and our own benefit is for your glory. It is for the edification of our brothers and sisters. Let each one of us Lord, be seen by our brothers and sisters and let them also be edified by what you're doing in us and let us look at them and be edified by what you're doing in them. Lord, come and work mightily your kingdom. Lord, in us we pray, amen.